Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 43, recorded Sunday, October 11th, 2020. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hello, everyone. And thanks for tuning in to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cinturpino. As you can tell, I'm back to my Sunday slot. This is the first weekend that we haven't been out diving since mid-August. It's been eight straight weekends of being out there. We are fortunate to be teaching and training while staying safe and vigilant against the virus. And the weather up here in Connecticut has been absolutely incredible. Next weekend we'll be out again conducting our Dive Against Debris specialty. Can't wait for that. Also this week, I got a nice note from Sid Mackin, who is the former president of the Historical Diving Society and the author of the Behind the Lens column in the Journal of Diving History uh, regarding my three-part segment on E.R. Fenimore Johnson. Sid really helped me out with a lot of the research, and he appreciated what we were doing there on Scuba Shack Radio to uh, inform a little bit more about one of the unknown pioneers in our diving history. On today's show, I'm going to recap our Patty Rescue Diver class, we're going to chase some coral, and I'll bring you another installment of Sea Hunt, It's Still Alive, for some cave diving. Maybe. So, here we go. Last weekend, we conducted the Paddy Rescue Diver class. We had a spectacular weather weekend and a most rewarding evolution. We like to conduct this class later in the dive season as it allows for our divers to get all their prerequisites done before entering the rescue diver program. By this time of year, we've had several advanced open water classes as well as other classes that prepare our divers for taking this important step in their diving education. Becoming a paddy rescue diver is a prerequisite for becoming a master diver the highest recreational level within PADI, or the launching point for entering the professional ranks of Dive Master. Today, I want to talk a little bit in depth about my perspective on the Rescue Diver course. First off, while the course is intense and demanding, it is also a lot of fun for both the instructors and the students. The dialogue, interactions, and camaraderie are extremely rewarding. As we look to deliver this most recent rescue class, we needed to think about how best to do it during the current COVID-19 environment. For knowledge development, we took advantage of the PADI electronic learning for Rescue Diver. Prior to the class, I reviewed the electronic learning. I wanted to make sure I understood what the students were getting. The electronic learning is thorough and comprehensive. 
When I asked our class what they thought about the electronic learning, one of the students said it was the best electronic learning they had done with Patty. So we felt very comfortable with our students having a solid knowledge foundation as we started the course. After the e-learning, we broke the class down into three components, a virtual session to review key elements from the electronic learning, an intense pool session to run through the rescue exercises, and the open water practical consisting of exercises and the required scenarios. For the virtual session, our goal was to focus on elements that we weren't going to cover at the pool or at open water. We went a little deeper into diver stress with various examples from our own diving experience. We also talked about the divers getting overheated or too cold, especially between dives. Our goal was to reinforce some of the aspects of the knowledge development and to answer specific questions and finish with the expectations and logistics for the rest of the course. We found that doing this with a virtual session via Zoom worked very well. The intense pool session covered a lot of ground, starting with the self-rescue techniques, we quickly moved into the rescue diver exercises. While we focused on individual rescue skill development, we started to introduce the class to the teamwork when confronted with a real emergency. The session was also intense for me as well. Playing a panicked diver at the surface as well as underwater is physically demanding. From the tire diver toes to water exits, approaching and controlling a panicked diver to responding with throws or in water, we kept a solid pace. We capped off the pool session with the demanding exercise seven the unresponsive diver at the surface, something us instructors all dreaded during our instructor exam. It was now time to go to open water portion. Our class was responsible for setting up the dive site with all equipment they thought they would need. They were responsible for having an emergency action plan and being ready for the rescue scenarios that would culminate the class. They were a team of divers ready to respond. We continued individual skill development on exiting divers, approaching and handling pa panic divers, towing, and yes, again, doing exercise seven. The intensity continued with preparations for searching for a missing diver and using emergency O2. We were now ready to see the team respond to a missing diver and it was great to see them quickly organize and put their knowledge into action. Like real life, they confronted some challenges, had to shift things around and solve problems. In the end, the team found the missing diver, brought him to the surface, and did all the necessary actions to get the diver to shore, out of the water, and initiate CPR with O2 while awaiting the arrival of EMS. To a person, they all felt a great sense of accomplishment and gained a level of confidence they can lean on if confronted with a diving emergency. You know you had a great class when they all returned to the dive shop to help us get things cleaned up and then sit around for a nice, socially distant happy hour to recount the class and swap a few sea stories. As I said at the beginning of this segment, 
Rescue Diver is most rewarding evolution. As instructors, we feel really good when we see this newfound confidence emerge in being a Patty Rescue Diver. The documentary Chasing Coral premiered in July 2017, and it is a powerful film. And since we've been talking about coral reef conservation at the shop, I thought it would be good to do a review of Chasing Coral here on Scuba Shack Radio. I watched it again a few days ago, and it was just as impactful as the first time I saw it. The documentary was conceived by Richard Vivers, who is currently CEO of the Ocean Agency. Richard worked at a top London advertising agency before he got involved with a passion on ocean conservation. He was working on a project called XL Caitlin Seaview Survey regarding images of coral reefs. That's where he started to understand the impacts of coral bleaching. Around this time, he watched a documentary called Chasing Ice, produced by Jeff Orlovsky, and Chasing Coral was born. I thought I'd give some key statistics on what it took to put together Chasing Coral. First, it took about three years to shoot over 500 hours of incredible underwater footage. There were 30 countries contributing to the documentary and more than 500 volunteers involved. Just an incredible effort. The film won the People's Choice Award for Best Documentary at the Sundance Film Festival and the 2018 Emmy for Outstanding Nature Documentary. Jeff Orlovsky was originally from Staten Island, New York. He went to Stanford to study anthropology, got into filmmaking, and worked on the Extreme Ice Survey that turned into Chasing Ice. In 2009, he founded Exposure Labs, a production company focused on socially relevant issues. So Chasing Coral is really about the quest to document with imagery a coral bleaching event. By reviewing what was happening at Carries Ford Reef in in the Florida Keys and at Airport Reef in America, Samoa, they determined that they would need to build a viable underwater time-lapse camera. That's when they go to a company in Boulder, Colorado called View Into the Blue, and they were going to build the housing that would keep itself clean. It just so happens that Zach Rago works at View Into the Blue. He describes himself as a coral nerd and becomes a main player in the documentary. With the cameras developed, they deploy to Hawaii, Bermuda, and the Bahamas, and they put down their cameras and wait a couple months to get the images. It's a failure. The images are out of focus, a lost opportunity. It's back to the drawing board to fix the problems before their next attempt. The next opportunity is on the Great Barrier Reef. They head out, deploy their cameras, and wait. A large typhoon impacts their plans. So they redeploy to another island, Lizard Island, but they aren't able to take any of their special cameras. The team needs to do time-lapse manually. 
That means going out every day, setting up the cameras exactly as before, and getting the photos. Painstaking and exhausting. After more than 100 days, they complete the work. Over that time frame, the coral has bleached, died, and is overgrown by algae. Zach is extremely emotional at this incredible loss. It's crazy to think of water temperatures at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, but that's what it was. Another team went to New Caledonia, where they observed an amazing phenomenon, fluorescent corals, an attempt to shield itself from the temperatures. An amazing sight with amazing colors just before bleaching. Extremely sad to see the corals' stunning last gasps. The documentary continues with Zach and Richard presenting their work at the International Coral Reef Symposium in Hawaii. The time-lapse photography of the coral reef dying over a two-month period is dramatic and overpowering. The reaction of the attendees demonstrates the sadness. The film wraps up with Jack diving with one of his heroes, Dr. Charlie Verone, a pioneer in coral research and conservation. They are diving on a beautiful, unimpacted part of the reef. Charlie reflects back on maybe he didn't do enough. Maybe we all need to do more. Corals are being assaulted on many fronts, not just climate change, but pollution, sunscreen, and carelessness. Citizens are trying, and we need our governments to act as well. Perhaps a new day is dawning. If you haven't yet seen Chasing Coral, you can find it on Netflix. Please find a time. You won't be disappointed. If you've already watched it, believe me, it's worth watching again. We can't let them disappear. Time for another installment of Sea Hunt. It's still alive. And today, we're going back to Season 2, Episode 21, for Cave Diving. Cave Diving premiered on May 24, 1959. In this episode, Mike is working with a geologist, George Bryant, who is searching for uranium in an underwater cave. George has been doing uh, his diving with his wife Susie up until now, but needs Mike help to explore further and do more work. They are diving off the boat Olympia with its captain, Pops. Mike and George hop in and swim down with their watertight Geiger counter. Mike is in doubles and George is in a single tank. As they approach the cave, they put the earpieces from the Geiger counter into their ear and they take out the probe. Mike says the Geiger counter is chattering like magpies. All of a sudden, things start to shake. Mike is spinning around. George is at the cave entrance. It's an underwater landslide. When all the turbulence is over, there's a huge rock blocking the entrance to the cave, and George is trapped inside under a pile of rocks. Mike shines his light in, and George signals back. Mike can't budge the rocks, so he heads back to the surface. He says he has less than an hour before Susie becomes a widow. Mike tells Pops he needs the ship-to-shore radio to call the pier, 
and they need to bring out some big hooks to pull away the rocks. He's talking really fast. George only has 46 minutes left now. He tells Pops that it's real bad. Now they're desperately scanning the surface for the help from the pier. The boat rounds the point and gets there within 14 minutes. Susie is on board in her scuba gear, ready to help. George is down to 30 minutes. Susie insists on helping Mike despite his objections. Now Mike and Susie make it to the cave's entrance and struggle to get the anchors attached to the large rock. Finally, they get them in place, and Mike sends up a flare for the boat to pull the rock away. The boat strains when suddenly the anchors break away. Failure. Susie is desperate, trying to get into the cave. Mike is trying to calm her down, and he says he has to be rough with her. In the commotion, Susie's air hose gets fouled, and they have to buddy-breathe to the surface. Susie climbs on board. The hooks won't work. She's crying. Pops is trying to comfort her. What will Mike do? Now, here's where things really get interesting. Well, Mike just happens to have some dynamite on board, just in case, you know. Pops says that's kind of risky. Mike says there's no other option. But Pops was in the Seabees in World War II and says they used gophers to carry a line through a pipe so they concoct a plan to use a fish to thread the line around the rock. Well, it just so happens there's a barrel on deck with a live fish. Mike takes out the fish and ties a line around its tail and heads back down to the cave with the fish and a spear gun. He checks to see if George is still alive, looks at his watch. Time is running out. He lets the fish go into the cave, ties the fishing line to the heavier line, and tries to lure the fish back with his light. Mike tries to grab the fish. It's too fast. Time for the spear gun. He's got one shot, takes dead aim, and our hero fish is a goner. Mike calls in the fish, pulls the line through, and now has the heaving line around the rock, ties the bowline, shoots a flare to the surface, and the boat cranks up its engine. Finally, the rock is pulled from the entrance. Mike rushes in, frees George, and brings him to the surface. Mike yells out, I got him, and Pop lets out a big yahoo. Back on the boat, George and Susie are reunited. Mike is lounging now. They say George's leg will be okay. They're talking about the fish that saved George. Susie says that fish was Mike Nelson. As the episode ends, they're talking about Pop's idea from when he was in the Navy. And Pop's final line is, I wasn't in the Navy. I was in the Seabees. Hmm, wonder what my Seabee friends would think of that. Now, you might recognize George if you're of a certain age. That would be Herbert Anderson, better identified as Dennis the Menace's father, Henry Mitchell. Well, that was certainly not what we think of when we think about cave diving. Using a frisch to thread a line around a rock is a little out there. But if anyone can do it, it would be Mike Nelson on Sea Hunt.
Well, you just never know what you're going to get with Sea Hunt. Cave diving certainly surprised me. Again, I want to thank all of you out there that continue to listen, and as always, please pass it along. If you like what I'm doing, I'd appreciate if you give us a rating on your favorite podcast app and consider subscribing so you'll get the latest episodes. Until next time, safe diving, everyone. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.